Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim Lillywhite Bewley, and today I want to do a story on a very important individual. One who I believe has been a bit shortchanged in the history books and our collective remembering of important people. He was someone who was beyond his time, early in the historical timeline for what his views and beliefs were. Now, I wasn't initially planning to do an episode on this kind of subject, the subject of which I will reveal shortly, but I like to make podcasts, and I also like to listen to podcasts, and one of my favourite podcast creators is a man named Dan Carlin, he does hardcore histories and also common sense, and a recent hardcore history blitz edition that he made was on the Atlantic slave trade. Now, I'm a few hours into it, about two hours there. He's one of those guys who makes um, huge five-hour behemoths of podcasts, and they're so dense of interesting information. He's the sort of creator that I would love to aspire to become more like in my own way. But some of the subjects and information I'm learning from this podcast on the Atlantic slave trade was was quite depressing. It was very real. He's talking about the real human suffering of people that were slaves in that time, and before, of course, but also every single step along the way, from people in the West Indies, for instance, first becoming slaves, and then also the more reliance on African slaves as the years gone by. So as I'm listening to this, and understandably having a sort of depression, a veil of depression fall over my soul of just how awful we can all be to each other, I felt a momentum within to try and find some light, some flames in the darkness perhaps, around these times that were maybe pushing for better ways for us all to treat each other, during a time where a lot of us in modern times can look back as seeing as a very dark blotch on our collective history. I'm not going to do a deep dive on the history of slavery or anything like that. There are many better qualified people to do that. It's such a vast and deep subject that you could go back for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest things that we've kind of done to each other. I don't really feel qualified or the real desire to go into that, especially as I'm still learning about it myself. What I like to do on the Toasted Tale podcast is to find stories and hopefully improve my understanding of the world and do it alongside you through a podcast. Now, one of the best ways to tell or discover an interesting story is to take an individual in history and capture what made them important and what they did to change the the woven fabric of how society moved at that time. And so... Today, I want to look at a very interesting character by the name of Benjamin Lay and see what it took in these times to stand up against a what it feels like a massive wall of slavery and try and eke out some change, inch upon inch, little improvements to move it 
you know, it's almost like pushing a very small snowball down a hill, but the first few times you're getting no momentum. And how do you do those first few pushes? So that in a few years or decades, what really needs to happen, the abolition of slavery, for example, can occur. The subject, therefore, of today's episode is a man named Benjamin Lay, someone I've read up on now and I'm very excited to share with you his story. Let's take a look. The year is 1682. The place is Essex, which is a part of the south of England. This region was well known for a few things. Firstly, textile production, protests, and religious radicalism. Now, Benjamin was a third-generation Quaker, and throughout his early years became a fervently dedicated member of the faith. In the late 1690s, as a teenager, Benjamin left his parents' cottage to work as a shepherd on a farm owned by his half-brother in eastern Cambridgeshire. When it came time for him to start living his life on his own, his father had him apprenticed as a master glover in the Essex village of Colchester. Now, Benjamin had loved being a shepherd, but did not like being a glover. And this was probably a reason why, as a bit of a tearaway, he chose to run away to London and became a sailor at the age of 21 in 1703. Now, for dozens of years, Leigh lived alternatively in London and at sea, where for months he would share cramped quarters with a multi-ethnic fellow of other workers, cooperating within a strict hierarchy beneath the captain of a ship, and of course on ships there was usually extreme powers of discipline that they kind of needed in order to move the ships and the cargo around the world. Now, this experience, which included hearing sailors' stories of the slave trade and the journeys that were taken across the Atlantic to bring slaves to the New World, gave him a hard-earned and hard-edged cosmopolitanism. Later, during an 18-month stay as a shopkeeper in Barbados, he saw some of the abuses that took place to slaves by their masters. For example, he saw an enslaved man take his own life, rather than submit to yet another whipping. It was that, and the myriad of other barbarities, during his time in that British colony, that traumatised him, gave him that spark of anti-slavery sentiment that would passionately drive him forward into his more later years. I find it really interesting that we get a bit of an insight into his, like the birth of his driving force that occupied a lot of his life, his anti-slavery sentiment. Everyone that you know, everyone that you care about, or who've maybe just passed by in the world, has probably strong beliefs that they care about and foster within themselves. There's usually a very good, at least to them, reason why they have strong thoughts and feelings about these issues. And understanding the initial seed, the thing that once watered 
and sunlit upon grew into what they are now today, for me personally, I find incredibly satisfying to figure out. And it gives us a better idea for the future parts of their story, it adds a bit more depth to their character. Moving on, Benjamin Lay had no formal education. He maybe had a little bit here and there, but something he did specialise in personally was the study and history of Quakerism. He drew inspiration from the origins that were the English Revolution, where a motley crew of uppity commoners used the quarrel, the conflict, between the Cavalier Royalists and the Roundhead Parliamentarians, and whilst there was incredible strife and drama during that time, they were able, in the chaos, to propose their own solutions to the problems that blighted the day. Many of these radicals were denounced as antinomians. These were people who believed that no one had the right or power to control the human conscience. Whilst he never used this word, and it was more of a epithet really, he was deeply antinomian. And this was, drawing from his experiences and his study of history, the wellspring and birthplace of his radicalism that would take him forward. The earliest record of Lay actively participating in the organised Quakerism originated in America in 1717. Even though he was based in London at the time, he was following his heart and sailed to Boston to request a certificate of approval from the local Quakers in the area to marry a lady named Sarah Smith. Now, let me just give you a little bit more of a visual image of our Benjamin Lay. He was described as cutting a distinctive figure at around four and a half feet tall, with also a hunched back and narrow limbs, and an enormous white beard. If some of his contemporaries were tempted to compare him, based on his appearance, it would be to a troll. Now, I want to point this out because it shows a real drive for someone who maybe wasn't given the best hand at birth to then be able to go on and do what he did. But it also makes sense when we're talking about who Benjamin would later marry. Sarah Smith, whom Benjamin wanted to wed, was also a little person like him. But unlike him, she was a very popular and admired preacher in her Quaker community. When the Massachusetts Quakers, in an act of due diligence, asked Lay's Holmes congregation in London to certify that he was a friend in good standing, the reply noted that he was, quote, clear from debts and from women in relation to marriage, end quote. But they continued on saying, quote, We believe he is convinced of the truth, but for want of keeping low and humble in his mind, hath by an indiscreet zeal been too forward to appear in our public meetings. End quote. Back in London, he had a reputation, you could say, for disturbing. Quakers' meetings, taking the peace that they enjoyed 
and rattling it like a cage with a bird within. He liked to call out those he believed to be covetous, corrupted by worldly wealth. However his standing and letters of recommendation may have appeared, he received the approval to marry Sarah Smith, and thus the, well, what was more likely known later as the Quaker Comet, was set on a path. A lifelong pattern of troublemaking followed. He was a hellraiser, you could say. From two congregations alone in England, he was disowned and formally expelled. But further strife would lay ahead for the couple when they boarded a ship bound for Philadelphia, which was in mid-March of 1732. Their destination was to join a man named William Penn's, in quotation marks here, holy experiment. Like many thousands of others who had sailed to the good land, as he called Pennsylvania, they anticipated a future of great liberty. This was Philadelphia, that is, North America's largest city, and it included the second largest Quaker community in the world. Its centre was the Great Meeting House, at the Market and Second Streets. This was the home of the Philadelphia monthly meetings of the church, and among this congregation were a number of popular men of renown. Some of these individuals included Anthony Morris Jr., Robert Jordan Jr., Israel Pemberton Sr., and John Kingsley Jr. They led both the religious and political life of the colony, even to the point of vetting, through the Quaker Board of Overseers, all books and publications. In fact, they epitomised one of the early histories of Quakerism, in which friends came to Pennsylvania to do good, and in turn did well, very well indeed. This was to judge, of course, by the fact of wealth and power that was amassed by these prospectors of a better life. One of the great generators of this improved wealth, and something that all of these leaders, or many of them at least, had in common, were that they all owned slaves, as did the majority of Philadelphia's Quakers. Now, as we discussed earlier, having lived the previous ten years in England, where the sights of slaves were few, Benjamin Lay was shocked when he arrived in Philadelphia. To be sure, the sight of bondage in his new home was fundamentally different from what he had witnessed in Barbados more than a decade earlier when his values and sensibilities had been shocked to their core. In Barbados, almost nine in ten on the island were slaves, and this was in stark contrast to Philadelphia, where it was almost like one in ten people were enslaved. The levels of violence and repression were also significantly lower, but enslavement, violence, and repression were still a daily reality 
in the so-called city of brotherly love, enslaved men, lay noted, would, quote, plough, sow, fresh, winnow, split rails, cut wood, clear land, make ditches and fences, fodder cattle, run and fetch up the horses, end quote. He saw enslaved women busy with, quote, all the drudgery in dairy and kitchen, within walls and without, end quote. These grinding labours he contrasted with the idleness of the slave owners and growling empty bellies of the enslaved and the, quote, lazy ungodly bellies, end quote, of their masters. Worse, he explained with rising anger, slave keepers would perpetuate this inequality by leaving these workers as property to, quote, proud, dainty, lazy, scornful, tyrannical, and often beggarly children for them to domineer, end quote. Soon after arriving in Philadelphia, Lay befriended a man named Ralph Sandiford, who had published an indictment of slavery over the objection of the Board of Overseers. This had been done three years earlier, and when he'd found him, the man was in poor health, suffering from many bodily infirmities. More disturbingly, however, he also apparently had a sore affliction of the mind, which Lay would attribute to the persecution by the Quaker leaders onto Ralph Sandiford. Sandiford had recently moved from Philadelphia to a log cabin about nine miles northeast, partly to escape from his enemies. Lay visited this, as he would describe, very tender-hearted man, regularly over the course of almost a year. The final time, as Sandiford lay on his deathbed in a sort of delirium, it was noted that he died in a great perplexity of mind in May of 1733. At only the age of 40, Lay concluded that, quote, oppression makes a wise man mad, end quote. And so what does a man like Benjamin Lay do but take up Sandiford's struggle? He began staging public protests in order to shock the friends of Philadelphia's Quaker elites into awareness of their own moral failings about slavery. Conscious of the hard, exploited labour that went into making such commodities such as tobacco and sugar, he showed up at Quaker yearly meetings with, quote, three large tobacco pipes stuck in his bosom, end quote. He sat between the galleries of men and women, elders and ministers. As the meeting came to an end, he rose in indignant silence and, quote, dashed one pipe among the men ministers, one among the women ministers, and the third among the congregation assembled, end quote. With each smashing blow, he protested slave labour, luxury, and the poor health caused by smoking the stinking 
Sotweed. He sought to awaken his brothers and sisters to the politics of the seemingly most insignificant choices. Another example was when winter rolled in, Lei used a deep snowfall to make a specific point. On one particular Sunday morning, he stood at the gateway to one of the Quaker meeting houses. Knowing all his friends would pass this way, he left his right foot and leg entirely uncovered, after which he thrust deeply into the snow. This was a bit like the ancient philosopher Dionysius, who also trod barefoot in the snow. He again sought to shake his contemporaries into awareness. He was told by his friends not to do this, not to expose himself to the freezing cold, lest he get sick and ill. His response was, well, quote, Ah, you pretend compassion for me, but you do not feel for the poor slaves in your fields, who go all winter half-clad, end quote. He also began to disrupt Quaker meetings. Benjamin gave the slave owners no peace. The 19th century radical Quaker Isaac Hopper recalled hearing as a child of Benjamin Lay, quote, As sure as any character attempted to speak to the business of the meeting, he, this is Benjamin, would start to his feet and cry out, There's another Negro master, end quote. It would come to no surprise to Lay or anyone else that the ministers of the Quaker church had to have Benjamin removed from one gathering after another. They actually eventually had to appoint a constabulary to keep him out of meetings all around Philadelphia. And even that wasn't enough. After one particular event, he was tossed into the street one rainy day. Even though he was removed, he returned to the main door of the meeting house and lay down in the mud, requiring every person leaving the meeting to step over his body. I want to thank everyone who decided to tune in to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. This is part one of two on the story of Benjamin Lay, who I think is an incredibly interesting character. You may notice if you've got to this part of the podcast that there is a part, a point you could say in the middle, where the sound quality changes, or you could say deteriorates greatly. I'm very sorry about that. I'm currently working away from my normal office, and I have the script for the podcast, and I have the microphone... I have my laptop, but I don't have my usual environment, so I'm not able to have the same setup, and so the sound is different. So hopefully that won't matter too much. The information included is still the same. I'm still really interested in the subject, and the enthusiasm is definitely there. So I hope you enjoyed listening to this first half. The next half, the part two, you could say, of the Benjamin Lay story will be coming next week. And we'll see where the story picks up after then. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, then why not consider subscribing to the Toasted Tale podcast, 
liking this episode or sharing it with your friends and family. All of that is incredibly helpful. If you really enjoyed the show and want to help out even more, then I have a Patreon where you can financially support the show, which of course helps allowing me to keep making more episodes and increasing the quality and research time I can put into each subject. Anyone considering becoming a Patreon has my eternal gratitude. I'll put a link to my Patreon in the description below. I look forward to speaking to you all again soon for another Toasted Tale by the Fireside.